how is it possible that you know an elderly person in Bismarck, North Dakota, is somehow responsible, you know, for your reparation? And one of the crew members, you know, replied, you know, with a very pithy but you know poignant and powerful response, which is like, "But they're the same white people." And I was like, "Oh, okay, all right. How are they the same white people?" Right, and that was a question that I put to them, and it was a question I had to go away and ask myself. And you know what they expressed, right, was how the Caribbean was central, right, to the development of other, you know, North American and and British economics. Good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are,、uh, at whatever time you're at. My name is. Peter James Hudson. I'm an associate professor of African American Studies at History、um, at the University of California, Los Angeles, and I'm speaking with Javon Scott Lewis, the author of Scammers Yard: The Crime of Black Repair in Jamaica. Javon, perhaps you could introduce yourself. Excuse me. Sure. Thank you, Peter.、Um, so I'm Javon Scott Lewis. I am an assistant professor of geography and African American studies. At the University of California, Berkeley,、um, I have the pleasure of being here with you today, Peter. Thanks for taking the time.、Um, and yes, I've I am the author of Scammers Yard, the the crime of black repair in Jamaica, and I'm I'm really excited to to talk about it today with you. Wonderful. Well, it's it's good to be here with you,、uh, Javon.、Um, and let me say first off,、uh, congrats on the publication of of Scammers Yard.、Um, it's going to be a, a really important、uh, intervention in anthropology and in, in geography and Black and Caribbean studies.、Um, also, I think in in the history of capitalism. And I think the one thing that that strikes me about the book, beyond those those kind of、uh, disciplinary and academic. Um, uh, interventions is it's truly one of the most elegant ethnographies、uh, I think that I've I've ever ever read. It's a really beautiful piece of writing, and I wondered if you could just、um, start by responding to two questions first, or, or two statements. One is、um, if you could give us a kind of very short summary of of the the book and its thesis, and then ask the big question: Who are the scammers, and what、mm. is the scam? Yeah, thank you. So, so you know, Scammers Yard. Scammers Yard starts with you know a kind of central curiosity,、um, which is with this issue that I did not coin, but that you know I took you know from you know kind of lived experience and articulation of that lived experience in Jamaica, which is this this term called sufferation. And you know, sufferation in Jamaica is a way of understanding、uh, the world of hardship. It is, you know, to my mind, an ontological concern. It is an ontological recognition.、Um, it is, it is understanding the world not just for what it, you know, can be, but for 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 what it is. And out of that is produced a whole series of ethics and and approaches and and articulations, as I said earlier, about how to to make sense of it and how to navigate it. And you know, so being Jamaican, sufferation is a is a term. You know, like I said, you know, it 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 comes out of this experience,、um, and I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand what it meant, and I knew it meant something more than just suffering.、Um, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, I do have these kinds of、uh, various disciplinary backgrounds and 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 inspirations, and you know, in something like anthropology, there's a great deal of you know concern with what it means, right, to to suffer. Uh, we can think about a whole series of, of of authors who work on on that question, 
Um, but something about this was, you know, it, it, it felt a little deeper in Jamaica because it was just understood. Um, and so I, I went to, you know, think about what sufferation was, how sufferation was experienced, how sufferation uh, was navigated. And in that process, you know, I, I understood that there was a broader political economic story there. Sufferation wasn't just about the, the individual uh, experience of poverty, right? Sufferation was about the totalizing context, the totalizing condition of that impoverishment beyond the individual, but of course, encompassing the individual. And so what that meant was looking at Jamaica's political economic history, thinking from the plantation, thinking you know, through the moment of independence, thinking through uh, the moment of structural adjustment, the various moments that you know, the Caribbean, but Jamaica specifically has sought to emancipate itself from the kind of plantation moorings of its history into something, something more. And it's a difficult process. Um, it's an ongoing process. And so the scam to me starts with this question. Now, the departure for the scammers, the departure for the scam is that a lot of the previous approaches to sufferation, right? I mentioned the moments of emancipation, a moment, I mentioned the moment of, of independence. These are collectivist approaches, uh, collectivist approaches that drew on a very specific set of ethics that we can think of as cooperation, right? The notion of rights and so forth. Um, however, these have all seem to have failed, or at least they've, you know, given very limited returns. And, you know, so for the scam, there was a radical response to these circumstances, which didn't, you know, fall back on what we might gloss more broadly as a kind of respectability ethic, right? Or respectability ethos. So the scammers in many ways fully took up the, the ethics, if we want to call them that, of the kind of post-structural adjustment neoliberal moment in Jamaica, where you have free trade zones, right? Slowly uh, overtaking the tourist economy as far as business process outsourcing call centers, you know, emerging in Montego Bay post 2000 after liberalization of Jamaica's uh, telecommunications industry. These call centers are promising, you know, better wages, you know, a better quality of life. However, companies like Amazon, companies like ACS, companies like Vistaprint uh, that are operating in Montego Bay are paying somewhere around a dollar an hour US. And so it's clear, right, that as Norman Gravan called it, the rules of the game, right, meaning the rules that keep, you know, Jamaica and the Caribbean in a form of economic external dependence uh, were once again being perpetuated. So the scammers, however, took, you know, the, the apparatus of the call center and they found within it a kind of novel means of, of seeking a kind of economic opportunity. Um, and so, you know, it's important to get to that point from within the context of sufferation, because the scammers who I worked with, right, what they wanted was an economic independence. And so that itself is also a radical departure, right, in, in which the, the kind of political aspirations are no longer the primary, the primary factor, the primary inspiration right, behind the kind of emancipatory thrust in Jamaica, but instead it is purely economic. Um, you know, and so what we do is, 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 is we think about that, right? We think about what this means. So the scammers, you know, using these business process outsourcing call center protocols, practices, and I'll, and I'll say a little bit more about how they actually use them, they effectively earn a whole lot of money.
again, the economic thrust of their notions of independence, uh, bring them to a place where they begin to actually see their country, they see the Caribbean very differently, right? It now becomes a space of opportunity rather than a space that requires departure for opportunity in terms of the kind of historical migration migration that we've seen from the Caribbean and Jamaica specifically. And so in many ways, the kind of book moves from this notion of suffrage, grounding it historically, grounding it ethically, right, carries it through to the contemporary moment after leaving, leaving the kind of post-emancipation moment. And in thinking about the contemporary moment, and thinking about the kinds of wealth that the scammers are able to, you know, to earn, what the text eventually brings us to is how the capacity to earn effectively functions as a form of repair. And so, in a very pithy way, I, I like to say that the book goes from sufferation to reparation um, by by following the kind of political economic arc uh, of, of of Jamaica from you know from post emancipation. Um, you know, so your second question about like how the scam works. Peter, you're looking for work or something? Uh, <laughs> listen, the times are hard. Um, you know, in, in 2000, Jamaica liberalized the telecommunications industry largely for the purpose of attracting these, what we would call, you know, like offshore call centers to the country. In, in other words, they needed to enable to, to build up the infrastructure. You know, Jamaica, you know, for the majority of its history has been, you know, was controlled by, by a single telecommunications um, company, which was cable and wireless, which was the British kind of carryover from the colonial period. After liberalization, you had a series of players come onto the scene, the largest of which was Digicel, uh, which we know is one of the largest, I think, um, telecommunications, mobile phone, cellular uh, data providers in the Caribbean. But after this kind of infrastructural development, right, that is made possible by the, again, the deregulation of the telecommunications industry. It allows for uh, a whole host of data centers, customer service centers to show up in Montego Bay specifically. Um, they show up in Montego Bay because Montego Bay has long had, uh, the Montego Bay uh, free trade zone has long been established you know, for, for several decades as a site for other forms of, of, of free zone uh, manufacture and so forth. The, the jobs that come effectively are not good enough, right? And what happens is that while these jobs are largely thought to be entry-level positions, they end up ultimately being largely occupied by, by university graduates, right? So if someone goes to the University of West Indies, Mona, in, in Kingston, you know, they end, up, they end up working in the call centers. So what that means is that for, you know, your large working class population who may not have a university degree, these are no longer sites, right? These, these very quickly become sites that are not available for them, you know, to find, to find this kind of opportunity. But the truth is that even within the call center, the opportunity simply isn't, isn't adequate. The idea about what happens um, is important to the call center in, in one way, which is that what happens in the call center is that there is this capacity to understand how North American uh, commerce works. If you're thinking about the historical tourist trade in, in Montego Bay, there's a, there's a very specific and limited vantage point by which your local Jamaican is understanding, is perceiving right, the, the, the North American white tourist. It is unidirectional. The, the, the Jamaicans are there solely to provide a service. There is a form of opacity, right, that I talk about 
um, that does not allow for a full sense of how North American and white capital works. However, in the call center, all of the anxieties that we all kind of bring into a call center conversation, um, you know, when that toy that you bought for your child hasn't arrived on time, right? Or when, you know, you have, you know, missed a payment um, accidentally or, you know, because of circumstances on your credit card and, you, you know, you're calling that customer service agent. If you think about the, the relationships that are formed in those moments, right, the, the kind of vulnerability that you as a customer bring to that conversation, you can only imagine what that means uh, within a context of, you know, of a, of a customer service agent on the other end, you know, what kind of education they're receiving about the, the kind of everyday concerns, anxieties, and vulnerabilities of North American capital. So there's a sense of what people are kind of worried about. There is a sense about what people are aspiring for. Right, that in a kind of conventional, you know, tourist encounter wouldn't really be uh, perceptible, right? But materially, what comes out of the call centers are are lead lists, right? The names of these of of these of these customers, um, and I won't go into too much detail about how the 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 scam gets started because there's a great deal of controversy actually about where the scam starts. Um, but one thing we can say is that the scam you know, as a form of practice does, you know, have a very, um, you know, foundational link to the practice of call center work. In fact, one of the, the, the scammers that I worked with, they had previously worked in a call center. And this is the reason why the form of the scam that the crew that I worked with took the specific uh, approach that it did. And, and the way that, that that scam worked for the crew that I worked with, and I, in the book, I, I called them the crew and I identified you know, with pseudonyms, of course, three three main participants in the scam, Omar, Junior, and Duane. One of them worked in the call center. And, and as a result, the form of the scam was one in which they would call a potential victim and say, you know, you have been, you know, overcharged for your APR for the past, you know, several years. You, you know, should have been paying 7%. Have you been paying 7%? So, of course not, right? Um, okay, well, we owe you the difference. Wonderful. Well, the challenge is that in order to get the difference, we have to take fees. There might be some tax implications. And so we need you to pay that up front, right? And that's basically how it works. Through the process now, right, the scammers are using what I would have noted earlier as a kind of affective sensibility about uh, how these citizens of the United States, right, are thinking about credit, are thinking about their, their financial circumstances. Um, and so, you know, what it does is it really does disrupt the sense that somehow Americans are all, you know, in, you know, inevitably wealthy, right, or, or very well off. But, you know, in a, in a contradictory manner, you know, that doesn't matter, because actually, the truth is that while many of us in the United States may be financially suffering, you know, the argument can be had that no one in the United States, right, in terms of the middle class, right, who we might consider like white middle class individuals are suffering as much as your poor uh, urban uh, and black Jamaican. And so what happens is the, you know, the victim will either send money to an agent, right, who is somewhere else in the United States. And so many scams have, you know, have a network where you know other parties who are involved might be located in New York or might be located in North Carolina or Florida. 
And so they send, the victim sends money to that first uh, point in the U.S. And then that individual who receives the money then sends the money down to Jamaica. Um, that's just one of multiple ways that the money is received. But the way that it's received in the majority sense or was received in the majority sense was through money transfer services like Western Union and MoneyGram. Later on, you had the, the practice in which um, victims were advised to go to the nearby Walgreens or CVS buy a green dot um, debit card. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a debit card that you can load money on. Um, and then to give that number right to, to the scammer in Jamaica. Um, and that's how they would receive payment. Larger, larger crews um, who were bringing in significant enough cash would effectively result to what we might consider conventional drug muling um, approaches where they would have people just bring cash down uh, to, uh, to Jamaica, um, which of course, you know, is not necessarily uh, illegal if as long as, you know, you don't go over that $10,000 US limit. You know, and so the scam works that way. Right. There is nothing terribly sophisticated about the process of calling people. In fact, by the latter point of my research in Jamaica, while the crew that I worked with had used, um, you know, emerging telecommunications devices, apps and so forth to, to call their victims, you know, it was, you know, a kind of, you know, recognized, well-known phenomenon that individuals were simply buying, you know, international calling cards and just randomly calling U.S. numbers, trying to scam people. So in a way, there was something very, very unsophisticated about the premise. Um, but the the specific approach or the specific scenario that the scammers I worked with use was in fact very sophisticated in terms of trying to, you know, you know, con people by giving them, you know, by striking at the heart of, of most American anxiety, which is, you know, our credit score. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, one thing that, that your, your, your comments brought up, um, I mean, it really reminded me that one of the things that's quite incredible about the, the book is a really detailed kind of narrative arc of the, the history of Jamaican political economy. Um, and that's the really wonderful resource, I think, for, for readers. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you brought up this, this question of the kind of imbalances of, of power between uh, the Jamaican scammer um, and the kind of average white North American who may or may not be rich, but would be rich kind of in comparison to, uh, to the, the subjects of your book. But this also comes up um, for you as an ethnographer, and I'm wondering... You know, you talk a little bit in the book about your relationship to the crew, to um, Omar Jr. and and Dwayne, and they they bring you in as a Jamaican, but kind of keep you as at a distance because of class and color. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that and how that affected the um, the, the the research of the book. Yeah, that's a really great question, um, and I'm smiling because of a of an incident. Um, that I that I share, um, unrelated to the scam itself, but just the way that class and color work in Jamaica, you know. So a few things were at play that allowed me to kind of have access to to these to these guys, right? And you know, the the question, you know, when I, you know, when we were all meeting in person and doing stuff together as human beings, uh, when I'd given previous talks about you know this work at various department visits, you know, the question that always came up was like, well, how did you get access to these people? And, and and these were largely, you know, anthropologists. And there was a, you know, a, a question about ethnographic uh, methodologies here. And so, you know, 
one part of the issue is that, uh, or of the opportunity, right, that facilitated, you know, my access um, was being a Jamaican. You know, I am from Montego Bay. I have family in Montego Bay. There was a sense of understanding and being recognized. Now, the, the other issue, and I think the biggest kind of opening was that technically, you know, during my field work, um, you know, the scam wasn't what we would call, you know, officially illegal, right? There was, and it was, of course, illicit. Um, it was, of course, unsanctioned. But the, you know, the Jamaican government did not have any laws on the books that technically would allow for, you know, the, the kind of, you can be arrested, right, but not necessarily imprisoned, you know, for the scam. And so for that reason, there was a great deal, there was a great deal of openness about the practice. I kind of observed my first scammer while sitting, you know, on my, you know, my grand aunt, Auntie Pinky's veranda there in Montego Bay. And a guy walks past the gate and he sounds very peculiar. You know, his, his, his voice is strange. His accent is strange. And I said to Auntie Pinky, Auntie Pinky, you know, who's that man? How come he sounds so weird? You know, he said, well, my dear, he's just one of them scammers. I said, okay. You know, I was like, all right, Auntie Pinky, thanks for identifying something so fascinating for me, um, you know, in this way. Like, yeah, he's just one of the guys who's in the neighborhood and, and who's scammed. There was nothing, you know, necessarily clandestine about the scam um, during, you know, the initial period of my field work, which was, you know, from 2011 uh, through, you know, 20, 2012 um, up until January of 2013. And so they were, they were identifiable. That created an opening that allowed for my being Jamaican, right, to, you know, to, to enable a kind of conversation. You know, what was interesting, uh, and especially as it comes up in the book, the scammers were trying to explain to me sufferation, right? They were trying to explain to me poverty in a way that they thought that I couldn't understand because of my complexion, because, because in Jamaica I am what they would call brown, you know, what United States, you know, in the black community would be called light skin. Um, you know, however, that racial encoding in, in the United States doesn't necessarily match up, you know, directly with, with Jamaica because there's a great deal of class expectations and assumptions built into, into complexion and into color. The crew were trying to explain to me sufferation on the basis that I couldn't possibly understand it because I was brown. You know, what that meant was, was not that I was, you know, prohibited from spending time with them. But in a way, it, it actually formalized the relationship in a way that, you know, it, in this ethnographic maneuver where we learn, you know, especially in anthropology departments, that, you know, you should be learning from your interlocutors, right? There was something very specific that the crew wanted to teach me, which was, what it, which was about sufferation or, or, or poverty's life. What it did was it gave me a certain kind of position within, you know, within the relationship that I had with, with the members of the crew. Um, now, as far as not, you know, being able to uh, participate in certain things, you know, I, I intentionally kept myself at a distance, you know, because I knew that there was, you know, some, there were ethical, ethical questions, right, about, about how much I could become party to. And I, and I did make a choice to, to not become party to anything. You weren't drug dealer for a day or anything like that? I wasn't drug dealer for, you, you get it. Okay. I wasn't a drug dealer for a day. I wasn't a scammer for a day. You know, I, I think that process of ethnography, this idea of needing to embody the subjects that we, that we quote, study, you know, isn't the, isn't, it wasn't my objective, 
right? Um, you know, my, my objective was to, you know, fully be able to receive and, you know, through myself being an intermediary to, you know, faithfully re-articulate and to state the experiences and the frameworks that these guys were kind of using to understand the world. But just to tell you that really quick joke, and I've been telling this in some of my classes where we, when we talk, you know, in my Caribbean studies classes, when I was back home and I was back in my neighborhood, I would walk to a nearby grocery store. And, you know, every day I saw this guy watching me, you know, he was just sitting there at the corner of one intersection. And as I walked by, you know, every few days, he would watch me. And one day I just said, you know, how come you keep watching me? <laughs> you know, like every day I see you watching me. And he said, well, I just, I'm just confused. <laughs> and I said, why are you confused? He said, I don't know like, what you are. Are you, are you from here? Or are you a tourist? And I'm like, why would you think I'm a tourist? And he's like, well, because you're brown. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he's like, well, because every day I see you walking and brown people don't walk. Mm. I said, sorry? He said, brown people don't walk. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, brown people have a car or at least you, you have fear for a taxi, but I don't see brown people walking. So here I see you as a brown man and you're walking every day and I'm just confused who you are. You must be a tourist because you couldn't be from here. Right. And so that's just one example of how, you know, race and class, right, as a kind of embodied, you know, experience and practice is interestingly um, expressed and received, right, um, in, in the country. And so, you know, in a way, what my brownness and because of my foreignness, effective foreignness brought, you know, to the crew, you know, was actually a, a degree of, I wouldn't call it, you know, it was, um, you know, I was exotic in a way to the crew, if I can be just, you know, straightforward. Right. The, here was a guy who, you know, is brown. Uh, I was at LSE doing my PhD and this is part of my PhD research, you know, who was there. Right. Who had access to the same kinds of things that they had access to. Right. And, it, and so in a way, you know, my my being with them was a mark of an accomplishment because, you know, I had an iPhone four, they had iPhone four. Right. Um, they would make fun of the fact that I wasn't actually up to date on all of the, the recent fashion trends, right? I mean, they were, you know, God knows why, but, you know, all of Jamaica, Jamaican men especially were wearing like Hollister, right, at the time. Um, <laughs> I don't know why, uh, you know, but I didn't have Hollister shirts, right? And I wasn't wearing true religion jeans. Well, I couldn't afford true religion jeans if I wanted to wear them, right? So, you know, the point is that there was a kind of reputational element to the relationship and i think that was another another aspect of why i was able to kind of spend time with them in a way that i was and so you know that has everything to do with your with your very you know astute question which is about the way that race and class uh you know color has a as a kind of catch-all for those two things actually works works in the country and it worked in my in my ethnography well in in jamaica um and i think this is in some ways typical typical of many parts of the Caribbean where, I mean, I think of Jamaica with the national motto is out of many people, one. Um, right. But then Walter Rodney's always pointing out, well, you know, Jamaica's 98% black. So who are these many right. people we're talking right. about? And and there's a way right. that, that that motto becomes a kind of way of, you know, it's a power move, right, by the by the, by the the color elites. Um, and right. I worry that, uh, you know, searching for this, this kind of Jamaican multiculturalism um, is a way of of denying um, access to the sufferers to to political power, but I wanted to you know the the way in which you've um, linked sufferation 
to reparation. Uh, I, I'd like you to say a little bit more about that. And I mean, the first thing for me is is the idea of separation is um, is a really incredible one. And and on one level, it it seems to have a kind of Orlando Pattersonian Sisyphean <laughs> idea of of nihilism, right? Um, right. And the kind of hopelessness of of the the Jamaican poor. Um, but as as you described, there's also this this profound uh, philosophical element of it. I mean, the way one accesses the the knowledge and meaning, not just the knowledge, but the meaning of separation through meditation, um, and then through hope, like to understand your your political economic situation, one has to think through it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more about about that and and your kind of emerging knowledge of that as as a as an individual, but also in its kind of longer historical context. And then the importance of reparation in this, because I think that adds a whole other important element to the book. It's not just cataloging um, the, the deprivations of the poor. It's about, okay, this is a critique of capitalism, a critique of racial capitalism, a critique of, of structural adjustment, a critique of, of, of neoliberalism, a critique of the unbalanced relations between the United States and Jamaica, between the West and the Caribbean. And Black people um, might not have found a way to destroy it, but they found a way to, to take from it as a form of reparation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that last point that you made about finding a way through it and to kind of utilizing it, you know, needs to actually be applied, you know, across the history of the Black experience in the Americas. Um, it's important to note, right, that the plantation, right, was an economic system, right? We think of it largely as political, we think of it as cultural, right? We think of it in this way that somehow simultaneously recognizes but you know elides the the kind of role of economics in in the process right and so when we read about say plantation plots for example um which are of course the you know the small the small areas you know in the plantation that enslaved africans in the caribbean right were allowed to kind of use to cultivate their own food sources right because of course the plantation you know didn't necessarily provide <laughs> the everyday uh, materials uh, for life and sustenance. Um, so the idea that the, the plantation plot could be a thing that facilitates a whole host of processes, being able to grow your own food means that you're able to create a, a kind of secondhand or secondary or would, would really be a primary market, right? Within, you know, within the kind of plantation landscape people like Sidney Mintz, you know, and, and, and Sylvia Winter, you know, talked about how these plantation plots were instrumental to the formation of Caribbean economic systems, right? The notion of the Caribbean market. Um, and so in a way, I want to situate what the scammers are doing, right, within that kind of tradition, right? Finding a space within the kind of landscape of sufferation to actually, to make life, right? As we say in Jamaica and as, and as a crew said, right? Make life means, you know, to actually make life, like literally to make it, right? To find the instruments of, of, of self-provision, right? The instruments of self-fashioning, the instruments of self-determination, right? This is what making life is. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to occur after, you know, some grand, you know, some grand revolutionary, some grand emancipatory moment, 
right? It happens within the context of subjugation, right? It, it happens within uh, the plantation and it, it happens, right, within, as the scammers note, within the kind of context of, you know, a kind of global economic order that is meant to continue to extract value, right? Um, and profits from the lives and bodies of black people, right? So, you know, sufferation, you know, sufferation as a philosophy then, right, is, you know, and you're right about the, what is the Pattersonian, is that what you said, the Orlando Pattersonian uh, nihilism? Um, you know, and I start with the book saying, listen, you know, Trojan of Sisyphus was instrumental for me as a text, right? And I read that text as a teenager, right? I read that text as a way of understanding the Caribbean condition, right? And it's important for those listening who want to think about Afro-pessimism, go to that text, right? Um, go to that text and understand, right, where, where some of, of, of Patterson's early thinking, you know, he wrote that novel, uh, the Trojan of Sisyphus, you know, as a, as a early 20-something you know, those ideas have had a very long life and I won't go into that debate, but they've had a very long life and they've had a very long life for me in terms of thinking about how we narrate, how we illustrate the kind of condition of what we might call entrenched intergenerational structural poverty, right? And it's not, and, it, and it's important to note that it's different than the normative, you know, say economist or public policy specialist, you know, framing of of poverty, right, which is just a failure of the economy, right? Or we need to do something to get the, you know, what did Dave Chappelle call call them the poor's, right? Uh, to get the poor's, um, you know, uh, back on track, right? To to come up with a new program to to get them educated, right? All of these ideas in which, you know, what what poverty. Uh, is understood as is, is as a fundamental uh, deficiency, right, in one's quality, in subjective quality, and so I knew that that wasn't right. You know, black people around the world, and you know, you know, for my concern in the Caribbean and Jamaica more specifically, you know, are brilliant, right? Like, no, they're not poor because of any kind of individual deficiency, right, or any cultural deficiency. Um, something systemic is going on. And so something like sufferation helps to explain that. Something like sufferation says, listen, if you go to um, Delroy Wilson's Better Must Come, there's a, there's a song, you know, 1971 song that was used um, largely by Michael Manley's uh, political campaign um, that year. But the lyrics go, I've been trying so hard and still I can't make it, right? Everything that I do seems to go wrong. But who God bless, no man curse. I thank God that is not the worst. Better must come, right? That that very brief lyric is a is a very you know phenomenal and and perfect representation of what suffering is and how it is it is understood. This ability to constantly try and to not have progress. You know, in the book, right? There is you know there's a quote from from Juniors and it says like, look, how can like why I'm a man with I'm a I'm a youth with intelligence. Like, how come things aren't working out for me? He recognizes that he has a capacity, right? He recognizes his innate ability, right? Um, you know, to, 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 be, to be wealthy, to be, you know, um, satisfied in these ways. And he can't be. And so the problem isn't with, with him, right? The problem is with the system, right? The problem, you know, the problem is with the world, which as the old Jamaican aphorism goes, you know, the jackass says that the world isn't level. And so sufferation starts with a recognition, right? It starts with, listen. We understand that this is the way the world is. Now we have a choice, right? We can weep and wail and gnash our teeth, right? Rent our, our clothes, these kinds of things, or we can actually find a way through. 
Um, and, and so sufferation, right, is, is not pessimistic, right? Sufferation is, 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 is pragmatic. Sufferation is a recognition, you know, that the system is, is you know, as the regular artist Popcorn says, designed to set people up, but it is something that can be navigated. That's what sufferation is, right, as a kind of practice. And this is rooted in, in what the anthropologist Diane Austin called the kind of eudaimonic hope, right, that comes out of, out of West Africa, right, West African religious tradition. And so on one level, we, on one hand, we have sufferation, but then you, you, um, you kind of cut through it uh, and oppose it with, with reparation. And uh, talk a little bit about that. I wanted to understand what this all meant. If a good opportunity looks like a dollar an hour working at Amazon's call center, then what does it actually mean as a scammer, right, to bring in, you know, 10,000 U.S. in a month, 15,000 U.S. in another month? And, and, I, and I'll say this, that, you know, you know not every month there was there, ten, at least for the crew that I, that, I, that I, you know, spent time with, you know, not every month was $10,000, $15,000. But they did come, right? They did happen. You know, and so I wanted to understand what did it mean, because I saw what it did. I saw that, you know, for members of the crew, you know, what happened was, okay, well, guess what? Now the, 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 the son or the, the youth, you know, for, for one of them is now going to, you know, now going to private school, now taking swimming and, and Spanish lessons, right? There is a kind of, there is a kind of interesting kinship reaction Right, where the the kind of you know partner, the child's mother, right, is is somehow not quarreling with with Junior as much or with Dwayne as much, um, you know things are happening. Right, a car is being purchased. Right, a second car is purchased, or a piece of land is being is being bought, um, just outside of Montego Bay. Oh, okay, and a house is being built. You know, there was something so radical, Peter, right, to what this money did for for these men that I needed to understand two things. I needed to understand what that money meant to them, right? So I saw what it did. I wanted to know what it meant to them, but I also wanted to know what it meant to get it the way that they got it, right? I wanted to know what it meant for them to effectively be stealing this money, but for the money to have such such meaningful consequence for their lives. A part of that was, you know, asking, well, how do you, you know, how do you feel about, you know, about the scam? You know, how do you feel about stealing from who are largely elderly um, white North Americans, people who are in their their 80s and, and sometimes in their 90s? And out of that, there was a whole host of very fascinating and unexpected responses from the group. You know, the one was that the year that I was in Jamaica was 2012. A couple of things had been happening, right? CARICOM had begun its own kind of reparations uh, commission. There was a great deal of discussion about reparations in the political, in the kind of, you know, political class uh, in Jamaica and again across the Caribbean. But perhaps most importantly, Vibes Cartel, you know, the infamous dancehall reggae artist had come out with a song that year, uh, you know, called Reparation. It was effectively a, an articulation of how Jamaicans should understand what the scam does and, and what it means. And it was like, as long as there's no violence, right? As long as they are, you know, doing good things, there's nothing wrong with the scam. 
you know, and the, the, the chorus, you know, went on to say that, you know, them call it scam, but we call it reparation, right? Every ghetto youth is a star. And so they just want to live like one, right? And I'm just like sitting with this and like, okay, that's interesting. And so, you know, and I was aware of the song. And so I asked, you know, the crew members, well, you know, what, what does like, why is scamming okay? Right, effectively, and I and I asked it in in a very in a much more precise way than that. And I have a whole piece in the book where I talk about asking moral versus ethical questions and what they kind of what they kind of allow for. Um, without going into that, effectively, I asked, you know, please help me explain what how are you able, right, from an ethical standpoint, to 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 do this crime. Um, and the response was, didn't Vibes Cartel tell us it's reparations? And I was like, okay, you know. That's super convenient. And, you know, certainly a little, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's convenient, right? And I think one might be inclined to dismiss, right? Because the song was out that year, because, right, it was, again, a convenient um, framework, you know, for the scam, a convenient justification fundamentally. Um, but I decided to take it seriously. And I, and I made a decision for a few things. Well, well, for a few reasons, right? And one is, well, listen, you know, when you're thinking about the Caribbean, right? When you're thinking about Caribbean studies, Caribbean history, Caribbean literature, right? Popular culture, right, is the epicenter, right? It's the modality by which, you know, Caribbean social theory is, is uh, facilitated, right? We can't, you cannot separate that when you're thinking about the kind of experience of the Caribbean. And so, you know, the fact that cartel could make this declaration and the fact that it resonated, right, however conveniently, you know, with the crew members meant that it was, it was legitimate. Um, it was legitimate because throughout the process, throughout my time with the crew, they would constantly refer to other kinds of, of music, right? And largely, you know, North American hip hop. Right. Rick Ross was actually the crew's favorite artist, right? Because he embodied this, you know, now classic trope of, you know, a kind of hip hop arc where, you know, a hustler, you know, goes from hustling to, you know, the end of the rainbow is is like, you know, some kind of multimedia mogul, right? We can think of Jay-Z, we can think of a whole host of characters who, who kind of fit that um that mold. And Rick Ross was one of the latest, one of the latest individuals and 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 he spoke to the crew, he spoke to their kind of ethos. Um and so Vibes Cartel fit in a very similar way. And he was asking for Jamaican society to understand the inputs into the scam, meaning poverty, right? But also how the scam facilitated, you know, some of the broader aspirations, um, not only of the individuals who were scamming, but of society themselves, right? Like sending your, your sister to college and buying a house for your mother and all of these kinds of things. So then here, here I am saying, okay, well, let me take this reparations thing seriously. I had to say, well, okay, if this is reparations, how is it possible that the history of colonialism, the history of slavery in the Caribbean has has effectively, but you know, not entirely, been one orchestrated by the British colonial powers? Right? We can't forget the kind of Spanish origins of Jamaican Jamaican uh, colonialism, right? How is it possible that, you know, an elderly person in Bismarck, North Dakota is somehow responsible, you know, for your reparation? And one of the crew members, you know, replied in a, with a very pithy, but, you know, poignant and powerful response, which is like, but they're the same white people. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. How are they the same white people? Right. And that was a question that I put to them. And it was a question I had to go away and ask myself. And, you know, what they expressed 
right, was how the Caribbean was central, right, to the development of other, you know, North American and, and British economics. And I say that, you know, in a way that sounds really dry, but, you know, you know how they put it, it, you know, was like, we, we make them have what them have, right, was how, was how it was put to me. And in that, right, was a whole sense of the kind of more recent history of, uh, you know, Jamaica and political economy, right, where we could track the kind of sentiments of these young men to the post-structural adjustment period, meaning from 1977 onwards, where North America, right, begins to have a, a over-deterministic influence on Jamaica's, Jamaica circumstances and Jamaica's political economic um, realities. Uh, many of which, you know, have, you know, directly and, and meaningfully impacted the, the lives of these young men. And so I decided to take that as a way of thinking about what, what are the possibilities for reparations? What are the possibilities for repair? If we take their political, you know, if we can call them that political articulations, their sensibilities, right, their frameworks, you know, around this, this, this geopolitical, political economic kind of history, and we marry that to the capacity to to purchase to materially remake their lives then thinking about these two things together actually forms right a, a kind of question and i believe an answer for the, the matter of reparations or at least repair and so you know understanding that as a formal reparations policy and we team we, you know we tend to only think about reparations as policy um you know and not about the kind of like affective you know subjective personal consequence of what that policy is meant to do, um, I, I thought about repair as being, you know, something that needed to be, you know, prioritized over, over reparations, right? Um, meaning, I don't think that reparations is going to be a, a process by which we raid the banks, you know, of, of, of U.S. private citizens, right? A white U.S. private citizens specifically, but what what the scammers helped me understand, right, was that reparations, right, as as its quality, which I'm calling repair, right, repair being the quality of reparations, you know, has to take into consideration the kind of very messy, you know, and and, and tangled uh, colonial histories, right, that are not neat linear kind of inheritances within the idea of the United States, within the idea of of France, within the idea right, of Great Britain. The process of colonialism, the process of slavery, right, was a global affair, right, that had lots of different parties playing a variety of roles, you know, to different degrees, depending on where their literal investments were. Um, but there was a great deal of entangled kind of, of, of processes, you know, that gave us, you know, the kind of global trade in, in, in African slaves um, and the, the centuries of, you know, slavery and colonialism that followed. And these scammers recognize that. It seems to me that they have a very, very acute and implicit sense of, of global white supremacy, effectively, and, and their <laughs> location in the political economy of, of global white supremacy. I wanted to ask two more uh, questions about the reparations piece, though. And the, the first is, and I think you've begun to answer this, but how would you say specifically you see Scammers Yard contributing to the kind of uh, CARICOM discourse of reparations and the work of, of Sir Hilary Beckles and Professor uh, Vereen Shepherd at the University of the West Indies, who have really tried to push this agenda? And I think one of the, the points um, that, that uh, in the CARICOM platform is uh, around kind of psychic repair, um, which he's 
touch on. And the second question is, it seems to me that there's a certain kind of divergence in the narrative of, of Black redemption that's been a part of kind of, um, if you want to use the phrase, the kind of emancipatory narratives of Jamaica, um, and uh, one that you know very, very well in terms of kind of the, the iconography and philosophy of Rastafarianism and the idea of uh, repatriation, uh, a return to Africa, because now it seems like we've Africa um, and the kind of Pan-African impulse of Rastafarianism doesn't seem to be at all um, present in the kind of discursive repair of, of the scammers. So I'm wondering if you could say something, uh, if you have any thoughts on that, on the kind of uh, position of Rasta at this, this moment in this discussion um, and the, the very specific ways you see your book uh, engaging with the, the CARICOM uh, reparations movement. You know, I think what the book can offer to CRC, you know, and but also, you know, the, the kind of ongoing debates around reparations in the United States and, and elsewhere uh, in the world, right, is that we, you have to start with the people, you know, and what we have, what we have with a whole host of these, of these platforms, it's controversial to say so, but, you know, they really are kind of like top down approaches to the questions of reparations right you know in other words the the issue that drives many of these these global programs i know i'm sorry not global programs there's no global program for reparations in terms of, of actual political interest um, or investment but meaning you know the various programs for reparations uh platforms policy um proposals that exist in, in various countries um is that they in in a very obvious way are are directed to help you know edify the society through the subject's development. You know, I think the CRCs, you know, they have a 10-point platform. They have repatriation, you know, for people who want it in on their in their program, right? Um, they have this question of, of psychic repair and having that kind of assistance and providing services for, you know, for living through the kind of histories, you know, of trauma. You know, importantly, there's a health component, right? Um, because it's important to note that you know that injury, the injury lives in the body of Black people, right? To to you know to the degree of insulin resistance, for example, um, and this is something that I've seen uh, Professor Sir Hilary uh, Beckles you know talk about in person, right? About the way that the the insulin the insulin medicine, the diabetes medicine um, that exists is less effective for Afro Caribbean people because, as he as he argued the kind of centuries of overconsumption of sugar in the plantations on the, on, the, on the cane plantations, right? As an idea, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly, but, you know, beyond these very interesting and novel, you know, and I think really important, you know, interventions, the general thrust of so many of these policy proposals are, you know, effectively individual citizenship development that will ultimately go on to serve the nation. And so, you know, earlier you talked about the out of many one people, you know, kind of like Creole nationalist motto of Jamaica. Um, so what we see is that the kind of reparations uh, programs that are being advanced are, you know, effectively meant to service that notion of, of society, that's that notion of the nation. Rather than mandating education, right, rather than mandating, you know, certain kinds of social services, you know, what the scammers, what the scammers demonstrated to me, and, you know, and I think this is actually controversial, because I don't want to help reify a kind of respectability politics here. But if we think about what the scammers did with the money that they received, right, as I mentioned, 
They put their kids right in private school. They gave their kids Spanish lessons. They gave their kids swimming lessons, right? They built a house, right? They 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 bought land, right? These are these are the kind of instruments of intergenerational wealth and opportunity that you know were facilitated without any form of reparations program, right? But were were facilitated without any kind of government mandate. In other words, what the scammers you know showed me was that you know repair. Repair is being able to actually fulfill on your own terms, right? The the kind of emancipatory, redemptive, if you want to call it that, kind of like ethos or thrust or aspiration. But one just requires the means to do so. And that's the issue that's at the heart of, of reparations is the scalability of, of these of these opportunities. And that's what makes it challenging. So but what I would love for you know folks to take away, folks who are thinking about reparations, is that there is a great deal of capacity and capability in individuals to understand what is best for them and their families and for their communities. If we are going to, you know, demand that they be concerned with their communities, because that's a whole other question as well. And given the means to do so, they will actually care for themselves. And moreover, reparations, right? The facilitation, the provision of these kinds of things, and we could talk about the United States here. The provision of these kinds of things, right, don't need to need to necessarily come as a form of reparations, because we know that, especially in United States history, the provision of social housing, and I don't mean Section 8 housing, but I'm talking about the kind of subsidization of the development of the suburbs and these kinds of things, have all been facilitated by the government and they never have been understood, right, in their provision to be a form of reparations. So in other words, what I am worried about is that these programs, right, these these platforms will will attempt to give black citizens, wherever they may be, what are effectively normative and to be expected services and provisions by the state. But calling them reparations in a way undermines right, the actual debt that is owed to these people, which should be separate right, from the from the ability to access adequate health care, from the ability to access, you know, adequate and actually beneficial uh, education, right? From the ability to, to, to access the market, to, to buy a home, to have job opportunities. The problem is that these everyday things are being framed by so many of these uh, proposals as reparations, and they're not reparations, right? Reparations you know, is something separate from that. Um, the, you know, what was the other question, Peter? I forgot. Well, the, the, I mean, first of all, thank you for that. That's, I think, a really, really smart and brilliant response. It's not simply that they're getting re- reparations. They're getting what they have always deserved, what we have always deserved. But I think the, the other question is, is how do you frame this in, 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 in relationship to the kind of Rastafarian discourse of, of, of repatriation that, that emerges as a kind of, kind of uh, out of the kind of global uh, movement of Pan-Africanism and um, I mean, from Rasta to Garvey to this kind of thing, and and how does how does this diverge or or converge with uh, with that kind of discourse? Yeah, well, you know, that's how I know you know you and I can be friends forever because you asked me a question about repatriation, and um, the scammer position is that those ethical impulses have passed. The idea of the notion of you know, of a kind of political liberation, right? A kind of, you know, pan-African liberation as far as the scammers are concerned, right? Is no longer, right? So they've opted out. They've opted out of this this kind of uh, progressive narrative, right? Uh, of, of, of liberation. They've seen what it does, right? They've seen, you know, what 
the past 50 plus years of Jamaican independence has wrought, right? They, they, they saw what happened between 1834 and 1962 in Jamaica. And so in many ways, they've opted out of that. Now, to kind of pull back from that and to think about how this, this fits more generally within a question of, you know, of a kind of Pan-Africanist philosophy, Pan-Africanist politics, you know, what the question of sufferation does is it, it, it demonstrates a kind of, you know, universal global black political economy, right? Sufferation is not specific to Jamaica. Sufferation is something, you know, that I'm actually looking at, you know, in a different way, but in, in the United States today, right? And we can see, you know, we can see the connections between the, the kind of justifications for Jamaicans scamming North Americans, uh, to you know Nigerian oil pirates, right? Who are attacking the kind of shell refineries and stealing oil and, and doing that kind of they're recognizing the way that, as you called it earlier, and rightfully so a kind of like white supremacist political and economic order works. Now what that has to offer as far as as a question for you know repair reparations, right, is that there is there is this need to kind of reconcile what we might consider the converse, right? Converse to the kind of white supremacist order right, what we might need to do is reconcile the kind of global notion of blackness. Because what the scammers actually point to, right, I think is a worrying trend, which is that people are opting out effectively, right, of a kind of global black politics. Um, and you see that happening in a variety of ways, right? The, the rise in the United States of, the, of the, the ADOS movement, right, the American descendants of slaves for reparations, you know, while there is an investment in a particular kind of politics, and I don't say that the scammers have, you know, the same kind of politics, um, but what we see is there's an opting out of the global, the kind of global, you know, sensibility and the practical concern of, of blackness that's rooted, right, in, in a kind of global recognition. Um, and so, you know, to my mind, that, that's a great vulnerability and that's a great, and that's a great worry. Now, you know, to bring up repatriation, right, to bring up Garvey, right, is, is a way of centering, you know, continental Africa, right, in this global order. And I think, you know, I think that does need to happen. It's, it's you know, it, it, it struck me, you know, that we are, you know, heavily invested in, into, you know, the repair of our relationship with, you know, the kind of settler colonial spaces that Black people have had to come occupy over the past centuries. Yet, by comparison, very little work um, has been done to kind of repair the relationships right, between, you know, Africans in the diaspora, right, and as Gavi put it, Africans at home and Africans abroad. Um, something needs to happen in that regard. And, and so, you know, as far as the book is concerned, the scammers in the book are a symptom, right, of a kind of failure of our global Black politics because left to the individual nationalist kind of concerns, you know, they are effectively insufficient. And that's been, you know, the kind of proof, right, uh, that we've continued to live through and we're continuing to live through, you know, every day um, in, in North America, right, with the kind of wanton anti-Black state violence that, that we continue to be bombarded with. Now, as far as Rastafarians, right, Rastafarians have long had a view. And I'm glad I'm able to share this here. I grew up as a Rasta youth and the things that I grew up understanding Rastafari Rastafari to advocate for, um, I'm seeing the need to advocate for them still, but I'm, I'm seeing a will to kind of advocate for them now. Um, you know, when we're thinking about a kind of politics that is inherently anti-colonial, when we're thinking about the, the, the kind of felling of various monuments, when we're thinking about the discursive reordering of the world, 
that we've seen, you know, post BLM, these are all the things that that Rastafari have been have been advocating for, you know, since the 1930s, um, albeit within a kind of theological framework, but still a politically oriented theological framework. Um, now, what Rastafari, you know, is thinking about today in terms of repatriation, you know, is a far cry from, you know, from people like Prince Emmanuel Charles Edwards in the 1950s, right? From some of those early, early groups that like went to Shashamani in Ethiopia uh, a little bit later. Um, you know, so the, the, the idea of repatriation now is, is, a, is, a, is a question that we haven't, we haven't given enough attention to. Um, you know, my sense at the moment is that repatriation is about thinking about these relationships. It is about finding our global black communities once again uh, in, in, in kind of communion with, you know, groups and, you know, communities on the continent that are invested in, in those kinds of black politics. And I'm not, you know, generalizing or trying to, you know, gloss over the, you know, the multiple, you know, uh, complications and in fact, uh, you know, um, we're seeing what's happening in Ethiopia, we're seeing what's happening in Nigeria. Um, so it, it, it is still very complicated. But again, as I said earlier, it seems as if we've been giving a lot of attention to kind of working through those complications out here in the West. And we've been given very little uh, time to thinking through those complications um, within uh, the relations that, that, that uh, Africans in the West have with, with those on the continent. I, th I think that's that's really brilliant. I mean, I think you know Angela Davis says something along the lines of freedom is a con constant struggle. But I think those kind of making those 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 Pan African connections is is also a constant struggle. And I was thinking as you were talking about um, George Padmore, the Trinidadian Pan Africanist, in 1929, while he was still a member of the Communist Party, he wrote Life and Struggles of Negro Toil of Negro Toilers, which the the importance of that book. Um, is precisely the kinds of, of connections that, that you're making, right? So he's looking um, in during the crisis of capitalism of the late 1920s and the 1930s um, at not only the modes of colonial governance that are affecting Black people in the Caribbean, in North America, uh, in in all parts of, of Africa, but he's looking at all of the kind of uprisings and, and forms of organization that are challenging that. But this is really one of the first books that makes those connections. And I think it's, it's striking that we haven't seen kind of contemporary books um, as Black Lives Matter um, and anti-police brutality mo movements kind of expand across the Black world um, as people are involved in the, the kind of scams that you're talking about, as you put it, the, both the scams and the claims for reparation in the United States, in, in Jamaica and in other places. That I think it's, in some ways, it's, it's our work to make those connections um, real and to narrativize those, those connections. And I think you've already begun to do that. I want to ask two or one, one two-part final question. And I think I, I love these two-part final questions. One of the things that most impresses me um, about what you've done in Scammer's Yard is, and, and it's, it's a, a certain kind of difficulty that, that is close to my heart, which is the, the difficulty of, of writing about the Caribbean as a very specific and nuanced place in the midst of the U.S. Academy, where it's, the Caribbean is often subsumed to, to Latin America or to the diaspora writ large, if it's ever talked about it at all, it's it's difficult sometimes to even find the space to teach classes on on the Caribbean, let alone on on Jamaica as a specific place. Um, and so, I wanted to ask you about um, about your the kind your genealogies of of Caribbean studies and the importance of Caribbean studies for you. And and specifically, um, I mean, two genealogies. One is is through 
um, people like Norman Gravan, who you mentioned early on, um, and the role of the New World Group, um, and the kind of work of Caribbean political economy that they put forth. How do you see yourself in relationship to it? What are your critiques of it? How do you break from it? And I think the the, the second uh, person, and I guess this is the second part of the question, is um, uh, in relationship to a tradition of Caribbeanist anthropology. And I'm thinking specifically um, about the work of, of Faye Harrison, who's done so much work uh, on on structural adjustment in Jamaica, um, specifically around uh, gender and structural adjustment and um, and women's labor, and I'm wondering if you if you could um, talk about then both uh, the New World Group in in whatever way you can, um, but also Faye, ha- Faye Harrison's work um, and 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 how you've thought, and I think you've answered this kind of indirectly, but how so how how you've thought about gender through the book. Um. So yeah, to your early, to your kind of introductory um, comment before the two questions, you know, you're right that there is, and I think it's it's part of the part of the answer as well. So I'll, I'll start there. But you know, it is about finding space, right, to kind of think about the the Caribbean, you know, in a way that doesn't fall back, right, on the kind of Cold War regionalism, right, that gave it some relevance. Um, or gave it some of its, you know, conventional academic relevance, you know, and it's about thinking, you know, thinking about, you know, the Caribbean as a site specifically for the black condition and understanding the black condition, and that's and that's been actually, you know, part of the biggest challenge, right? Is 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 the decentering of 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 blackness, right? Or the peculiar positioning of of, of blackness where its epicenter is, is North America. And everything else is, is seen as a variation of that. And so, you know, I've very adamantly, you know, been a kind of supporter of, 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 of Caribbeanist work within the academy, meaning like I, I, I teach Caribbean stuff, you know, even if I'm not able to teach a Caribbean class, right? Caribbean thought is, is Black thought. Right. If we're thinking about so many of the the kind of Black writers who have been at the fore of, of Black studies, but who are in this very moment, right, um, kind of critical to thinking about Black studies. You mentioned Walter Rodney earlier, right? We talk, talk about Sylvia Winter, Stuart Hall, C.L.R. James. You mentioned George Padmore. These are all people, um, you know, Fanon, etc. You know, these are all people that somehow, you know, get taken up in Black studies without necessarily, you know, their their geographic kind of formations coming along with them. There's this, this interesting extraction of Black thought out of the Caribbean that leaves the Caribbean behind. And it's really frustrating, frankly. Um, and so something like Scammer's Yard, like, I don't know, you know, I think it's a lovely book. It's got very fantastic colors on it, but I, I, I am, you know, I'm worried that, you know, in Black studies, it looks like a book that's only meant for people who are interested in Jamaica or the Caribbean. Yet we, you know, fail to recognize, again, the deep intimacies between the geographic forms of, of Blackness that exist. You know, so I say that as a kind of like preparatory comment, you know, to the specific tradition. As I said earlier, I'm a Rasta youth, right? I grew up as a Rasta youth and, and we, you know, and, and so I grew up with the intellectual tradition that preceded the academy in a way. And, you know, and so for that, I really never had any kind of allegiance to any proper you know, intellectual uh, tradition as we as we kind of see it coming out of out of the academy. You know, Rastafari we do a thing called reasoning, right? Which is which is a again a kind of praxis of of deep intellectual inquiry and debate. 
And so I wanted to say, you know, formally um, and on record that that is my intellectual tradition. Rastafari is my intellectual tradition. Uh, everything beyond that is about taking taking the framework of liberation, taking the framework and love of blackness and black people um, that that intellectual tradition of Rastafari gave me, and finding the necessary tools, right, to produce to produce understanding, right, and to and to contribute to the kind of progress of blackness. The idea in the Caribbean of somehow separating, and so we can go and think about the Caribbean tradition specifically. So the idea in the Caribbean of somehow separating political economy from culture, right? And you see this, you know, especially in North American Academy, isn't necessarily as easy. I mean, it's done, right? Um, and, you know, there's a literary tradition by which I mean, you know, literary scholarship and, and novels and so forth that have always been at the heart of, of, of Caribbean discourse, uh, intellectual discourse. And so as a result, you have to also, you know, I have to, you know, I think at, at least right, one has to pay attention to both the structural and the affective, right? The kind of political and, and the cultural um, to kind of use terms to kind of help, you know, clarify my distinction. So, you know, the New World Group were a, a set of individuals who, you know, mostly if not all economists who were thinking about the Caribbean in, in a way, right? In a, along a pathway that to my mind was parallel to the kind of, cultural analyses that were happening, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't separate. When you're thinking about something like sufferation, right, which is an economic condition, you can't separate that, uh, the, the economic from the cultural, right? The political economic from the cultural. And so for me, it was, it was necessary to kind of think through the work of the New, the New World Group, you know, people like Gravan, people like Lloyd Best, right? Because they were providing, you know, a kind of economic and structural analysis of, what brought about the the kind of circumstances of Caribbean structural impoverishment, people like George Beckford, etc. But there was something there was something inherently poetic. There was something inherently you know qualitatively illuminating about the work that they were doing, right? When Lloyd Best, for example, takes us through you know a series of the series of like plantation hinterlands, you know um, what you see are the consequences and the conditions for a variety of lived experiences. These are not just purely economic processes or economic uh, conditions that people are living within, or political formations of uh, plantations, settler plantation economies, but they are the 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 geographic uh, bases for which people will begin to construct themselves and to understand themselves and living in response to that. Um, you know, so for me, you know, there is a divergence, I suppose, in me using that work or their work in that way. Um, what I do try and make sure that 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 I do is is always to you know to make the point that there, right, is an economic analysis at the foundation of this work. Um, you know, and, and so in that way, it's very similar. You know, and I also take my cues from from Sylvia Sylvia Winter, right, who. Right. To my mind is one of our most, you know, deft, you know, economic thinkers, particular economic thinkers, you know. And how do you not understand the economy by thinking about or thinking with winter or, or reading winter? So for me, I think the departure, you know, if there's a departure, if there's a kind of if there's a kind of break with that tradition, you know, it is in trying to think about the subjective qualities of, of, of lives lived within the, the kind of circumstances, you know, that these theorists um, think about. 
you know, and so thinking about Faye Harrison, you know, what's wonderful is that, you know, Faye, you know, Faye is a Caribbeanist and, you know, is one of these Caribbeanists that we don't always think of as Caribbeanist, right? In this way that people get subsumed into the kind of, you know, black studies, the kind of black studies structure. And, and you can, again, go back to this earlier point that I mentioned about like extraction, right? Extracting, extracting the kind of intellectual insights right about black life without necessarily bringing along the kind of geographic and political and economic circumstances with with them you know the the questions of gender and structural adjustment you know Faye, people like beverly mullings right people you know like carla freeman and and, and deb thomas there's scores of, of of academics who are thinking so importantly about you know the question of race and gender, right? Within similar circumstances that I'm that I'm interested in, right? That I that I take up in in Scammer's Yard. You know the question of gender for Scammer's Yard is a question about masculinity, right? Suffocation for the crew, right? Was you know the fear of being assigned uh, as as being whatless, right? I talk about the question of whatlessness, right? In 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 the book and 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 whatlessness is is something that you know another. Another, you know, figure who I look to, you know, as as a as a kind of lodestar in in how to do this work is Barry Shivanis, right? And who who talked about the the kind of intersections of masculinity, culture, and political economy. The the issue of whatlessness is about you know a fear of lacking value in your community in within the kind of structures of your kinship within society, and so suffocation suffocation as a as a particularly masculinist uh, practice is is whatlessness. Um, and it is a condition that Jamaican Jamaican men seek to avoid at at all cost. And it seems as if you know, for the group that I worked with, their cost was you know participating in this international lottery scam. You know, so for me, it, but it does really go back to your earlier um, invocation of Rastafari. Um, you know, what I understand is that you know Rastafari understands right and and tries to express that the global condition of blackness right is is one in which violence that was both literal and epistemic and spiritual did everything that it could right to dehumanize um african individuals to the point of making them you know tools or apparatuses of of you know um colonial um economic uh, production the thing that rastafari right really shows is that that ongoing violence as an epistemic form right is pervasive it is mutable it is ever evolving and what we have to do is we have to have a kind of very clear sense of how the way that that world works and so when rastafari says listen white jesus and the queen of england right are the same kind of evil for example you know, that could be dismissed as some kind of, again, you know, theological, you know, preoccupation. But, you know, it is about understanding white supremacy, white supremacy in, as Rastafari says, high and low places, right? It is not just about the structures of the state, right? It is about everyday discursive speech. It is about the way that we 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 bring certain realities, you know, into existence and we, you know, weaponize them through speech, weaponize them through you know, our our everyday practices of consumption and our choices and the way that we regard one another, right? Um, and so for me, you know, again, trying to attend to that core objective, if I can if I can call it that, 
right? Everything has been, you know, has been a kind of seeking for the tools, right? Seeking for the language, seeking for the kind of networks and kinship networks, specifically if we're thinking about the intellectual tradition as being a network of kinship, building on the work of others, contributing to the work of others, you know, that's very intimate and important work, right? Um, it has been in the service of this core objective, right? Um, yeah. You know, I I, um, I asked you about the traditions of Caribbean political economy, but as as your answer as you've answered, we realize that the the traditions of of Caribbean political economy are really always uh, from the get go turned on their head, and I think that the kind of point that you're you're making of of having to move from a narrow sense of the political economic into the ro- ro- realm of of the novel, into the realm of poetics into the realm of kind of larger uh, ethical um, and uh, effective questions really, really shapes what that, that tradition, that intellectual genealogy looks like. And I, I always feel that it's, it's often the poets, the novelists, the songsters, et cetera, who, who are able, are better able to write about the economics of the region than the, the, the actually trained economists. But I think one thing that, that Scammer's Yard um, also does for us and I don't think I, I've I understood that until you spoke. And I think it's it's around the idea of reasoning um, as as your intellectual tradition, as as your the, the kind of um, your your kind of disciplinary formation, if you want to use that kind of language. What I I felt while reading the book, but didn't understand um, until you said that, is that this that sense of reasoning, that that mode of inquiry, that that mode of kind of um, ethical inquiry pervades the book and in many ways the book um reminds me of of walter uh, rodney's the groundings with my brothers which also comes um uh comes out with that that very basic question or or that very that that very core sentiment of of on one level care um uh, also of of not just of of listening um, and obviously of grounding and where his interlocutors are are more important than than him as an author. And it creates a very, very um, uh, special and specific tenure within the text, which I think is is so important, um, but also so rare um, in in academic texts. So um, it's it's for me, the Scammer's Yard is is incredible um, because it exceeds what we would expect from from a regular uh, academic text, and because we can feel that that kind of love um, and that ethic uh, running through it as a form of of critical political economy. So, Javon Scott Lewis, uh, University of California Berkeley professor, author of Scammer's Yard: The Crime of Black Repair in Jamaica, Rasta Youth. Um, it's been good to. <laughs> to ground with you this afternoon it's a wonderful book and i hope we can keep talking about it yeah peter thank you so much man i mean it's it's a rare occasion to have someone you know take such a sensitive read of the book as you've done and an astute read you know as one would expect uh peter hudson to sorry peter james hudson uh to do um you know but I think, you know, what you've just said at the, at the last bit is exactly right. I, you know, it is, it is a kind of work of love. It's a work, you know, of black love specifically, right? And, um, and I appreciate your time, man. I appreciate love your time. How about that? <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I hope to talk soon. Thanks, Lito.